What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have spent a lot of time on this show talking about the violence of institutions that claim to protect children and serve families. Institutions like Child Protective Services, Foster Care, and Family Court. We continue that conversation today with Jane M. Spinnick. Jane is the Edward Ross Aranau Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, where she directed clinical programs in family regulation for 40 years. Spinnick also serves as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York and was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation. She co-chaired the Task Force on Family Court created by the New York County Lawyers Association, and has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. Her book that we are discussing today is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kat. Um, excited about the conversation. Let's start with the origins of family court, which really were was juvenile court. Can you provide the social context of the time, the turn of the 20th century, and then segue into talking about the great idea that gave birth to the institution? Sure. So the juvenile court was created initially to use uh, benevolence on the part of a judge using informality and discretion really to fix children and families. This was considered a social court, not a legal court. So none of the trappings of a regular court, except for a judge, uh, existed. The idea was that the judge would be able to figure out whether what was going on with the child, was a child getting into trouble, and at the same time, trying to problem solve around this child, meaning that the court was intervening not only in the life of children, but in the life of their families. And this, as you said, started in the beginning of the 20th century at a time when there was a great influx of immigration into the country. And many of the progressive reformers at the beginning of the century Uh, wanted to turn those immigrants into what they thought were proper Americans. They were different than earlier white settlers. They were mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe. They had different languages and cultures and, and ways of being that these reformers were very concerned about. So one example of of an institution that they created to address making these into proper Americans was the juvenile court. Is what you were just describing uh, what you refer to in the book as therapeutic impulse? Yeah, the, the belief at the time was that a court specially set up to deal with children and families, could fix them. That was really the therapeutic impulse. The idea that you could create a social court. Judges in the first decades of the court saw themselves as the general supervisor and mentor of the home. One judge called himself a super parent. They were 
they truly believed that they were going to um, stop any kind of delinquency and turn families into what they saw as middle-class families with proper values. They were very um, afraid, I would say, of what the immigrants who were you know, filling up the cities of the Northeast and the Midwest, they were very afraid of, of who they were, especially because so many of them were poor. And that's important to realize because this was, was and continues to be a court that is predominantly filled with impoverished families and over time disproportionately families of color. But at the beginning of the century, at the beginning of the court, it was mostly to address the immigrant populations. Paint a picture for us or, or help us understand then the trajectory from it, be, it being juvenile court to family court. Sure. I think it's important for um, your listeners to understand that when the court began, there were really three areas of state intervention. One was delinquency, which is when a child is charged with an act which if the child were an adult, would be a crime. The second is what we think of today as child protection or child welfare cases. Then they were called dependency cases. And these are cases in which a parent is is, uh, charged with not properly caring for their children. And then Today, we call them status offenses, but at the time that the court was started, and really into um, until the 70s, status offenses were considered part of delinquency. They are cases in which young people are misbehaving, but they're not breaking the law. So their status is their age, which is why they're called status offenses. So a young person who is running away, being truant, not listening to their parents, not, uh, maybe having underage sex or underage drinking or drugging, all of these things are not crimes. They're misbehaviors. But at the beginning of the family court, this was all considered delinquency. Today, those cases are still going on. and but they are now called status offenses. So states call them by different names, persons in need of supervision, juveniles in need of supervision. But essentially, we're bringing these young people into court for misbehaving, but not breaking the law. The early proponents, uh, judges um, of, of family court, juvenile court, made big proclamations about what this court could and would do for society. What were those proclamations and what happened instead? Well, the proclamations were mostly about um, being able to stop uh, juvenile delinquency entirely, stop 
recidivism. They believe that if a young person went through this court, they would stop um, doing whatever wrong they were doing. And they also believe that the court could, as I said before, shape families in the way that the court thought would make them into proper families. Um, Many of the courts at the beginning of the 20th century provided what was called mother's aid. It was a precursor to um, what we now consider public assistance. Today, it's called TANF. And there were rules about mother's aid. Um, The mothers who were going to get it had to be considered suitable. So just like today, when, when a parent may apply for TANF, and they have to jump through lots of hoops to convince the government that they qualify. Very similarly, at the beginning of the 20th century, the mothers had to prove themselves in order to get this aid. But in all of the court's workings, they truly believed that what they were going to do was improve the lives of the families and children who were coming into the court. And they had very high hopes for doing that. Unfortunately, it didn't take very long for the critics of the court and even some of the supporters of the court to begin to recognize how a court isn't really a good place to try to uh, quote, fix families. And also there was a movement begun to say, you know, we're bringing all these families into court or these young people into court and we're requiring them to use services under the court supervision. And, and some of the academics, really, who were studying the court early in the 20th century were recognizing that many of these services needed to be in the community and not under the court's supervision. And many of the reports over the the whole century said the same thing, but the court did not want to give up on its jurisdiction and did not want to give up on administering these services. So despite the fact that there really began to be very strong um, support for supporting families in the community, um, the court really fought back and said, no, no, these, these things should be under our supervision. We shouldn't just allow parents and children to get these services voluntarily in the community. Specifically, Jane, how did they fight back? How were they able to maintain their power and even grow despite not fulfilling their promises and these movements that were launched to intervene? So the tactics they used then are the same tactics they use today. They tell anecdotes about how they've succeeded in um, in a particular instance for one particular family or one child. And in fact, when you look at what they've done empirically, not then and not now have they accomplished the goals they set. But the public 
mostly thinks, well, this is an important judge who's telling us how successful he or she has been. Or it's, you know, a report out that says, look how many families have been helped by being in the court. And and the judges throughout the century, and including today, often will herald the individual case as if that's how the whole system works. And instead, what has really happened is that the, that the statistics on success in this court have never established that the court has done more good than harm. And in fact, I believe that it's done more harm than good in part because the the court system, the judges and other people who work within it keep thinking that if we just fix it a little more, it will be perfect. But in fact, um, I have been involved in many reform efforts since I began this work over 40 years ago including uh, being responsible for a task force on the New York Family Court. And the the results are always the same. This is a court in crisis. If we just had more money, if we just had more judges, the court would work just fine. But in fact, that has been what everyone has said almost since the beginning, and the court has never really improved. The other part that I think it's important to understand is this vast jurisdictional discretion that the judges have. They have fought very hard to hold on to it and have have really rejected almost all efforts to shrink their jurisdiction. The the best example that I can give you is that in 1967, the Supreme Court looked at the juvenile court and in a case called In Ray Galt. And Gerald Galt was a young person who was charged with making a lewd phone call. He had no notice of the proceeding. He had no lawyer. He didn't examine witnesses. And at the end of this very short hearing, so-called hearing, uh, Gerald was sentenced to six years in the Arizona Reform School. If he had been an adult, he would have gotten maybe a fine or 30 days in jail. And fortunately, there was a lawyer in Arizona named Amelia Lewis who was connected to the ACLU, and they took that case all the way to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court said was, first, that Gerald should have had a lawyer, and and young people have a constitutional right to a lawyer when they are charged in juvenile or family court. But it also said that this court has never worked in the way it was supposed to work, and that the discretion that judges have um, has been misused. And so we have to layer due process on top of this court because it, it has not done 
in its informality what should have been done for fairness and due process. The judges in juvenile and family court after this were outraged. One of the judges said it's like dropping a nuclear bomb on the court. And the National Organization of Juvenile Court Judges, that's what it was called then, issued a resolution basically saying that we are going to fight any further intrusion into our jurisdiction because we know how to do this work and we don't need the Supreme Court or anyone else telling us how to do this work. So we actually resolved not to have any of our jurisdiction in any way circumscribed. And the judges really have fought back. It's more subtle today, the way in which they fight back. Um, But they do fight back whenever there is any movement toward restricting their jurisdiction. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Jane Spinnick about her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Families and Children. I want to talk about modern-day family court, but before we move on, well, I guess that's then and now, would you agree that part of why they're able to spew these antidotes and the public by and large accepts them is is not just because of the way we're taught to look at judges and people in those kinds of positions of, of power, but also because of the way we're taught to look at the types of people that end up in family court, poor people, black people, brown people, immigrants, et cetera. Absolutely. When the court, as I said before, when the court was founded It was mostly in the Northeast and the Midwest. The first court was in Chicago. And it didn't really reach into the Southern states for a couple of decades. What's quite remarkable is, or it's not remarkable, we, we are not surprised to understand that once the court began to bring Black children and Black families under its jurisdiction, it became disproportionately um, having cases of families and juveniles of color. And it remained and remains today overwhelmingly a court for impoverished families. Many times during this century, scholars pointed out that if families of means were brought into this court, they would never stand for it. So it has always been a court for impoverished families and disproportionately for families of color. Black and Native American children still are disproportionately brought to the court in delinquency proceedings and status offense proceedings, even as the overall number of children has diminished, which is good, despite what the public thinks. In fact, juvenile crime has gone way down, as have status offenses. But even as those numbers have come down, they remain disproportionately poor children and poor children of color. What I do think is remarkable are the reports that began 
early in the century to identify this. And there were reformers, both black and white reformers, who began looking at disproportionality and recognizing that as early as the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s, these reports were being issued in jurisdictions around the country saying, we bring these families into court. What they need is they need better schools, they need opportunities for employment, they need child care, they need nutrition, they need health care, and it's, they are disproportionately Black families who need this. And those early reports all stated that race was the, the driving issue. The, their poverty, yes, but even then they were saying, if these children were not black, they would have access to services. One of the one of the statistics that I think is most telling is that in the 1920s there were 40 nursery schools across the country that took black children. When black mothers during the same period all had to work. So there was a recognition early on about the impact of bringing these families into court and not giving them the supports in their communities. And yet we have continued to this day to disproportionately bring poor and and families of color into the court. And we are still saying the same things they were saying in 1913, which is if we just put these supports into the community, the community would figure out how to use them and we would not be disrupting them by bringing them into court. I want to talk about some of the disruptive elements of family court, and I actually want to start with um, something that I think people generally think is a good thing, um, but you lay out in your book some of the disastrous consequences it can have, and that's mandated reporting. Can you talk about when we saw the rise of mandated reporting? Sure. In the 1960s, there was a pediatrician named Henry Kemp who had studied um, a small number of children who had been abused by their parents. And he came to call this battered child syndrome. And what he reported was that doctors should be on the lookout for a small number of children who might be suffering from this kind of abuse. His intention was really for the medical community to pay attention to this severe form of physical abuse. And he anticipated that every year there would be a few hundred children like this. Well, from his initial work, 
what happened was we created a system of mandated as well as voluntary reporting that has just exploded in this country. When the reporting system began in about 1967, maybe 10,000 children were reported. In 2019, there were close to over 4 million reports on almost 8 million children. Nationwide, a third of the children by the time they reach 18 will have had some report and half of all Black children by the time they reach 18. So this is a total explosion. And what happened was that everybody who had anything to do with children became mandated reporters over time. And most of those mandated reporters think that what they're doing is if they are concerned about a child, they'll call up to Child Protective Services and make a report. And then they think the child is getting help. Well, in fact, that's not true. Immediately, half of those calls are just screened out and none of those children get services. Of the half that are then left, about half of those then get screened out. Maybe some of those children get some services, but until you get down to the number of children who end up with any kind of case in family court, you're talking about around a half a million cases. So we've gone from reports in the multi-millions to half a million children ending up having some form of case in family court. What's true about both the reports and the cases that end up in court is that the vast majority of them are not about children who are being physically abused, who are being sexually abused, or somehow so mistreated, like starved, like being starved, that there does need to be some form of legal intervention to protect them. 75% of the reports and 75% of the cases that end up in court are about neglect. And what we know about neglect is it is overwhelmingly correlated with poverty and other structural inequalities like what I spoke about before, the kinds of readily available services that are not in the communities where these families live. So many, many people who work in this system now are calling for us to end the mandated reporting system. This is not only because of this um, disproportionate number that have nothing to do with real harm to children, but also because so many families are unwilling to go to the doctor, go to the hospital, ask for help at school, even ask for help in a community organization or church because they're so afraid of being reported because everybody who works with children now 
in most states are considered mandated reporters. So it really has undermined the ability of families to be assisted. This idea, I want to say, is not new. In in the early 1990s, the federal government established a, a national advisory board on abuse and neglect. And this advisory board issued a report in 1990 that basically said the system we've created is a disaster. And this is a federal board. This is not, you know, people who are activists. These are people who very much see themselves as reformists. But they said, we need to take this system apart. We now have a system in which the public believes that by reporting, we are doing something responsible. And what they said is, we need to stop reporting and we need to start supporting families. We need to all recognize that we have an obligation as a society to create ways for communities to support each other. And unfortunately, um, first the Bush and then the Clinton administrations did not listen to them. And instead, we expanded the system even more by not only through this reporting system, but now by creating a, a system under what's called the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which requires families that find themselves in family court to, to try to either fix whatever got them there or, or um, fix in order for their children to be uh, returned to them if the children have been removed in a very short period of time without actually having the state provide them with the services that might have ended up bringing them into care in the first place. So there's also right now a real effort to repeal ASFA as well as the reporting statutes in order to be able to keep most of these families out of the court and when there is a real serious issue, the court or a court being able to address it through a legal process where parents can have due process rights and children can have due process rights. Because up until this time, because the system is so massive, despite states in, in many states, creating due process rights for parents and children, they are not actually given because the system is too massive and, and they are not spending the resources to allow that to happen. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Jane Spinnick about her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Families and Children. Jane, one of the other things that you lift up is that family courts are now uh, a profit-making industry. H how does that work, and, and how does that impede any possibility of fairness, equity, or change? Well, 
The family court is certainly an industry, and um, I have thought about it as being a middle-class works program. When I ran the Juvenile Rights Division of Legal Aid, and we represented in the mid-1990s all of the children who were in family court, either because of child protective services or because of delinquency, um, I used to say to the lawyers, our job is to put ourselves out of business. The, the system reinforces drawing money down, whether it's from the feds or from the state or from the local government, and using it to support itself. To There are extreme examples, like when... Um, Foster care systems um, use uh, children's survivor benefits to pay for their foster care, even though the state has an obligation to pay for their foster care. But also, the court itself often um, pulls down money to use for so-called reforms that really don't reform the court, but just strengthen its abilities to stay in business. So it, it is a money-making works program for a lot of people. And that's one of the reasons why it will be so hard to dismantle it. Because so we, we would have to recognize that all of the people or most of the people involved in this system would have to be retrained for different kinds of jobs. Also, there's, a, there's quite an extensive volunteer system in family courts around the, the country that also are, need to, to be taken out of the court in part because they are often let's say, do-gooders, um, and I don't mean to be pejorative, but they think that by helping the court out, they're helping families out or they're helping children out. But most of the time, what they're doing is making, giving the court um, some, some extra hands so that it can do its job slightly better than it does. And they too often um, talk about the great work they do within the court. But unfortunately, much of that work just helps to strengthen either the state system bringing those children into court or the court system itself. So um, certainly one of the great challenges is how to dismantle the system. And in in my chapter about abolishing the court, I really talk about how to shrink jur the jurisdiction of the court so that ultimately we can really ask ourselves, do we need this separate court, which still sees itself as a problem-solving court as opposed to a court of law? Do we still need it? Or if there has to be a legal case, can it be done in a, in a regular civil court or a regular criminal court, just taking into account that 
we do want to treat children differently than adults, and we do want to treat families in a way that is respectful. But what we don't want to do is uh, continue to populate this court um, with a great number of families who don't need to be there at all. Along those lines, Jane, you say in the book early on, uh, when you set out to write it, the intention was not to call for the abolishment of family court. Can you talk to us about your journey to get to the fact that literally it's <laughs> the, the <laughs> subtitle is How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families? I can. Um, when I, I started writing this book about a decade ago, off and on, And I did think at the time, I was very involved in reform efforts at the time, and I thought, well, if we we think about ways to improve due process in the court, give the, the families that find themselves there good lawyers, institutional lawyers who... Um, have a holistic approach to representing families who see these families for their strengths and not just their challenges, that we could turn the court into kind of the best it was intended to be. And I would say my change over that period came from a couple of sources. One was, as I dug deeper into the history of the court, as I've talked about already, I was so surprised to see that there, the problems that face the court throughout the 20th century are the same problems we're dealing with today. And the same solutions that were proposed by many people um, studying the court were the same kinds of solutions that someone like me was proposing. So that really changed my view of whether reform was an answer. At the same time, as abolition became an acceptable part of discussions, Um, as abolition became meaningful for so many people in the carceral system, I began to think about, well, what would abolition mean for the family court system? How would we think about dismantling this system through non-reformist reforms? That is, reforms that shrink the system, don't strengthen it, and and how could we um, acknowledge that the reforms that have come before have mostly been administrative, they've been adjustments, they've been calls for more money or more judges, but not um, deeply questioning the overall structure of the court. And then finally, I would say that I learned and listened hard to what my clients and their families were saying. During the time that I've worked in this court, I've practiced in it, I've I've taught about it, um, I've represented children, I've represented adolescents, I've represented adults, all impacted by this 
these systems. And I, I listened hard to their stories, to how this system undermined them at every step of the way, how they were not believed, how their strengths were not identified, how we punish them for their poverty, or we punish them for the structural inequalities that they are struggling with, instead of figuring out a system that would support them in their communities. And so, you know, that combination really led me to acknowledge that the people who need to be leading this charge are not people like me. I should be an ally. I should be, um, I should use my uh, professional knowledge to help, but the leading really has to come from the impacted families who find themselves there. And in New York, this is really happening and in some other places around the country, but I'm, I'm proud to say in New York, um, we have quite a number of um, activist um, programs and activist organizations really calling out and, and, and asking these systems to take responsibility for, the ways, for their harms and the ways in which they have harmed families over generations. And I feel like now my, my job is to be an ally there and to work with these families um, toward their goals. And many of my goals are their goals, but, but my job now is to work with them, help them to strengthen their goals. Jane, my, my final question to you, um, you know, I'm a believer, uh, I know a lot of my listeners on this show believe that, you know, there are ways that we can do abolition right now, though people push back and say, you know, abolition is this thing far off in the future. <laughs> what are some ways that in the dismantling of family court that we can practice abolition right now? Well, I think many of the examples we've already talked about, I think it is very important for for um, us to be open-minded about how um, mandated reporting has failed and why it should be eliminated. I think we need to be open-minded about who we bring into court. The international standard for juvenile responsibility is age 14. Yet in this country, in most states, we bring children as young as seven, eight, nine into court. Who are these children? Again, disproportionately black children. We're bringing them into court for a legal proceeding that they don't even understand when really they and their families need support to figure out how did this come about and what can we do to change it? We need to eliminate status offense jurisdiction entirely. We should not be bringing young people who misbehave, 
but don't break the law into court. One of the ironies is that all of us misbehaved at adolesc- as adolescents, but only some of them ended up in court under this status offense jurisdiction. Why is that? Those are the communities that are surveyed by state agents. Even parents feel the need to bring their children to court on status offenses because they don't have either the individual resources to address, let's say, substance use or, or truancy because they, they don't have the resources themselves and those resources aren't in their communities. And yet when they end up doing this, they realize they've lost control over their children. There is no need to do that. All of us misbehaved as adolescents. Only some of us are being brought to court. Let's just stop this and recognize that misbehavior in adolescence is first both normal, and secondly, if you, if you provide the kinds of resources that we're spending in the court but not succeeding in helping these young people, if we put them into their communities, then they can get voluntary help, as we know, Young people are much more willing to to accept help when they seek it out themselves. But if it isn't in their communities, they don't have a way to seek it out themselves. So those are just a few of the examples of, of ways in which we can begin to shrink the court. We also have to recognize for those much smaller number of families who find themselves there, they have to have full due process rights. Because what we've learned when when either young people or adults get due process in this court, they are much less likely to penetrate deeper into the system and much more likely to get the services that they need and also have fair proceedings where the state is really required to prove its case. Not like today, where in many, in many, many courts around the country, they aren't, they still aren't holding evidentiary hearings and relying too much on innuendo and unproven evidence to, to, um, punish these families, and to take their children away from them. All right, Jane Spinnick, we are going to leave it there. You all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning has been Jane Spinnick. Jane is the Edward Ross Aronow Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, where she directed clinical programs and family regulation for 40 years. Spinnick also served as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York and was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation. She co-chaired the Task Force on Family Court created by the New York County Lawyers Association and has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families. Her book that we have been discussing today, is The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. 
That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>